As we turn our hearts now particularly to the preaching of God's Word, I'll ask that you turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 9. That's Mark chapter 9. The full account here I'll read uh, goes through verse 13, but there's a lot going on in this text, so this Sunday we'll focus on the first half of it, and next Sunday we'll read the same but focus on the last half of this section. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Father, as we come now to your word, would you help us to to listen? And more than just listening, would you help us to believe, sink these things down deep in our hearts that we might follow you as disciples and bring you glory? Lord, we long to know you, And so we need your help for that. Would you guide us by your spirit, bring light to our hearts and light to our minds as we read and think and hear. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Mark chapter 9. We'll start in verse 2 and read through uh, 13 here. But Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, as they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus Only, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, what did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. So we're at here, we've been many weeks now, several months in the book of Mark, and we're at a pivotal point in Mark's gospel. We know that the first eight chapters lean heavily onto the idea of who Jesus is, establishing his identity that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. And now as we're moving from chapter 8 to chapter 9, we're on a seam here. It's tipping from who Jesus is in the last eight chapters now to what Jesus came to do. If you were here with us last week on Easter Sunday... We pointed out and noticed that in the end of chapter 8, it talks about Jesus speaking 
plainly that for the first time he's talking about the fact that he will suffer and be killed and rise again, that he'll essentially take the sin of all believers to the grave, to the glory of God. And with that, then, he calls all of his disciples to follow him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross. To take up my cross, then, and to follow Jesus is really a heavy statement. And it's really easy to get very overwhelmed by that, to feel weighed down by that. So I'm really glad that Mark puts this here. You can see at the beginning of this section in verse 2, it says, after six days. That's very specific. And you can imagine a whole lot of things probably occurred in those six days. Plenty of things that Mark could have written about that Jesus said and did. But Mark then with the help of the Holy Spirit, then puts this here. It's almost as if he says, I want you to see this next, because Jesus has just called you to a really heavy calling to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow him. And we need a bit of encouragement in that. We need to know, if I take up my cross, where ultimately does that cross lead? So that's our question this morning. Where ultimately will the cross lead us? And the answer to that is this text, the transfiguration. And it's going to take us a little bit to figure out what's going on here, because the, the apostles that are there with him, Peter, James, and John, their initial response is two things. Terror and confusion. It says that Peter just starts talking, but he didn't know what to say. Essentially, he just starts babbling, a little bit of rambling. You know, so you're, maybe you're the kind of person that if you get nervous, you just start to go and talk, and that's what's happening here. And afterward, in verse 9, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone what you saw here, not because he's trying to keep a secret, but because he knows, he says, don't tell anyone until after I've risen from the dead. He knows then that they won't fully get what's going on here until after he's resurrected. It's the same kind of experience that if you ever watch a movie as a kid, I don't pick out particular movies, but, you know, a, a kid's movie, and then you watch it again as an adult, and you go, wow, I missed a whole lot of things in that movie. Has that ever happened to you? That they had this experience, but then they did not fully realize what was going on until afterward, and they looked back on it. But afterward, they did get it. We know this because there were three apostles there, Peter, James, and John, and Peter, if you want to turn with me, in 2 Peter chapter 1, talks about this occasion. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, so he's now remembering what's going on. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter writes this, For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when Peter says he was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty, my first thought is he must be talking about the resurrection there. That's the piece that I initially go to. Where is Jesus' majesty ultimately displayed? Oh, he conquered the grave. He came back from death. He stands victorious over with it. He must be talking about the resurrection, but he's not. Look in verse 17. Peter goes on. 
For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom... Um, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's actually looking back to the majesty of Jesus, ultimately the majesty of God, and to do that he points to the transfiguration. Now, why was the transfiguration so important? Because in what we just read, there's some pretty spectacular events. I mean, Jesus is glowing is one pretty amazing thing. And he saw a resurrection there on some level. There's Elijah and Moses standing here. Now, if it were me, if I were with Peter and James and John, and I was writing about this event that I had just seen, dear diary, here's what I saw. You would think that I would mention the fact that Elijah was there, that I saw this epitome of the prophets, and that I saw Moses, like I looked at him in the eyes, you know, that you would mention those sorts of things. And that's a big deal, but Peter doesn't even mention that in this text. Why? It's because the experience of seeing the glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus eclipsed it all. That for a moment in the transfiguration, he's seeing a preview of the full glory, the full majesty, the full honor, the full splendor of God in the transfiguration. So we want to look at that transfiguration to see that too. You can look back in the text here and in Mark, as we look at the transfiguration, and to kind of help us with this, we have a book about transfiguration in our house. That's not surprising. I'm a pastor. I should know about these things, but my hunch is you've probably had this particular book in your house, too. You may at least be familiar with it. This book uh, that talks about transfiguration is a kid's book. It's called The Very Hungry Caterpillar. You remember the very hungry caterpillar? Actually, you, you know, turned the hung, the caterpillar was so hungry, I forget exactly all the order, but he ate one plum, and then he ate two peaches, or I forget exactly what the order. He eats all of these things, and you know the story. At the end, he gets almost sick, and then he bundles up, and at the end, he becomes, of course, a butterfly. It's a, a book really about science in some ways, a book about what we call metamorphosis. And a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. This word, transfiguration in the Greek, is metamorpho. This here is a metamorphosis. It's a change of form. Jesus is literally changing form. Now that might sound strange to us, and in some ways it really is. It's not a total change. When it happens, they still recognize him. Peter still calls him rabbi. He doesn't go, what are you? You know, we're not looking at a shapeshifter here. This is not something from the X-Men. This is not something from uh, Transformers or anything like this. But something about Jesus physically looked very different. It changed so much that Mark talks about how it impacted his clothes 
that his clothes were so white, it was whiter than anybody could bleach them. I think that little detail makes me chuckle. Uh, The text actually says someone whose job it is to do laundry, whiter than even they could bleach them. There's a commercial in there somewhere, I feel like. But Jesus is physically glowing. At least his clothes here in Mark are glowing. And in Luke's account of this, Luke says that Jesus' face in some way was altered, probably shining. And in Matthew's account of this, he says that Jesus was shining like the sun. Something about Jesus was metamorphed. Other than these things, the shining, we don't really know exactly how he changed, but that shining piece is enough for this to be startling, to be a little eerie, that he's glowing. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that unsettles me a bit. And at the same time, it should remind us of something, this glowing, that there's a lot of things in this text that are a pointer in this same direction. We've got the high mountain, the setting up of these tents or small tabernacles, the descending of the cloud, the voice of the Father, the glory of his shining face. It's almost as if Mark is calling us to remember something else that had happened 1,500 years ago. If you'll turn back to the book of Exodus, you'll remember this probably. So just to catch us up to speed of what's happening here, God's people, Israel, is in slavery in Egypt, and the Lord has not abandoned them. It says that the Lord heard their cries. And so he raised up a deliverer in Moses. We all know the story that Moses is kind of wandering around and sees the burning bush, and he goes, it's holy ground, so he's told to take off his sandals, and he meets with God And God says, I am, I am. I am the one who not only exists, but who is with you. I am Yahweh, the God of this people, and I want you to go and bring this people out of Egypt. And when you do, I want you to come back here and worship me on this mountain. And so, you know, long story short, that's what Moses does. He goes back into Egypt, and after some period of plagues and other things, the Lord brings his people out, And they travel through the desert, and they get to this mountain, and they meet with with the Lord, and the Lord says, I want you to prepare in this day. I'll meet with you in three days. I want you to wash your clothes. I want you to put a boundary around this mountain. Do not touch it, because a holy God is about to meet with you here. And I don't even want you to have sex during that time, not because sex is bad, but because they're to remind themselves that this is a separate, set-apart time. So they did that. And in three days, Moses goes up the Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. During that time, that's when he gets the Ten Commandments, and Moses asks a question that's a good one for us to ask. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord does, at least in part. He says, I won't show you the fullness of my glory because you cannot take it, uh, but I will show you part of myself. That's when we get to Exodus chapter 34. Here's the text now that we want. Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 25. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai... 
with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone or was shining because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to them, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount, in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he, he told the people of Israel what was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. In essence, here's what's happening here. That Moses is having direct contact with the Lord God. And as a result of that, the skin of his face literally shined. Now, this is slightly different in some ways than what's happening with Jesus. What's different for Moses is that Moses shining, you may have heard this example, but it's a true one. Moses shining is like the moon shines. The moon does not shine from within itself. The moon shines on us because it reflects the light of the sun. That's how we see it. But the moon shines that way. Jesus, however, shines more like the sun. He has his own light. He's not reflecting the light of another. So while Moses is reflecting light from outside, Jesus was reflecting light from inside. Moses was shining because he had contact with deity. Jesus shined because he is deity. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that he's one with God. So now, fair warning here, theological term coming. We know that Jesus was man, flesh, skin. He had skin of his face. You could touch it if you were close enough to him, and he let you. Uh, but at the same time, he's also God. We call this the hypostatic union. There's your theological term, fancy term in case you hear it. There you know what it is, which means that Jesus is 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. Here's the, here's the catch, though. Even though that's true, Jesus is fully God and fully man. While he was on earth, his deity existed, but was veiled was covered in some way, just like Moses' face was veiled. We sing about this every Christmas. You'll recognize this song. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, veiled incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. It's Hark the Herald, angels sing, by the way. If you're going, oh, what's the rest of that? Uh, trying to get to the chorus. It's Hark the Herald, angels sing. It's a line in it. But veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Another way to see that is, when, uh, to say that is, when I'm looking at Jesus, I am seeing both God and man. But the aspect of God is in some way veiled for our sake. Now, at the transfiguration, the veil of his deity 
came off. And we could see his deity, at least a a glimpse of it, more so than we even see it at the resurrection. We're seeing a window into God himself. A similar sort of thing happened at the resurrection. You remember that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that the veil between us and God, because we cannot take the full contact with God because we are sinners and he's a holy God, that in removing our sin, he's actually rent that veil apart so that we have actual contact with God. So what's happening then at the transfiguration is we're seeing God. He's not just a human light bulb. It looks that way. He's glowing. That's a little strange. The reason, though, why he's glowing is because we're seeing God's holiness, God's goodness, God's love, God's justice, God's power, and the fullness of this is so intense that it literally glows. Now, here's the exciting part to me, as if that weren't already enough. Jesus then calls us, God calls us to do more than just see this transfiguration. Do more than just see this metamorphosis. You see it in verse 7. The cloud overshadowed, the voice calls, this is my beloved son. Here's the call. Listen to him. There's a call here to do something. Pay attention to this Jesus, because this is more than just a magic trick. This is more than a fireworks show where you get to look back, sit back and go, ooh, Jesus is glowing. Uh, there's something going on here that's actually going to do something to us, that this metamorphosis that's happening in Jesus is actually going to change us. How? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is the last place we'll go, but it's important for us. Second Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, Paul has had an extended discussion here about the experience with Moses and the veiling of the face, and he gives us a warning here in 15, yes, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, essentially saying those who don't believe are veiled to see the glory of God. But then in 2 Corinthians 3, as we continue on, verse 16, here's the rest of it. But when when a person turns to the Lord, that veil is removed Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Did you hear it there? I'll read it again. We are being transformed. Same word, we are being metamorphed. We are being moved from caterpillar to butterfly. He says here, from one degree of glory to another, or from glory to glory, from the source of Christ's glory comes our glory. Paul also talks about this in Romans 12, that we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed, you remember, by the renewing of our mind. Part of this is offering our bodies as living sacrifices. 
So let me talk briefly about this just a little bit. Hang on with me. We're almost there. If we're to be transformed then, that impacts all of us, all of our bodies, all of our minds. So with our bodies, we don't have license then to use our bodies in any way that we wish. That we're not free to just have the experience of sex in other ways outside of the context of marriage, or that we're not free to use our bodies to pinch the fat there, or to look in the mirror and call ourselves ugly, or that we're not to ignore our health, or physical exercise, the things that we eat, that we just intake whatever we want, that our bodies are to be transformed by the glory of God. And these things fall short of the glory of God. We want our bodies to be transformed. Same thing with our minds. Sometimes we think about politics more than we pray about politics. Or... We gripe and complain about people and situations, or we neglect the pursuit of Scripture that we might have a dozen Bibles in our homes, but many of them sit dusty. We do not pursue the Lord with our minds, and all of this falls short of the glory of God that we want our minds to be transformed. As we think about our, our bodies and our minds, really all of ourselves being transformed, C.S. Lewis talked about this in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He writes this, he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that draws something out of us that we're content with these mud pies, that we think these things are good, when the Lord is saying, I want a holiday at the sea for you. I want you to see my glory transformed in me, and then I want my glory to transform you. We want to see the radiance of the face of Christ in a way that transforms us, that causes us to love our God and love our neighbor, that we'd get a glimpse of the glory of God here. And all of this is reminding us that the cross is headed in a direction in a way that's changing us now. But, last bit here, I love the very end of this section that we've just read. At the end of verse 8, I'll read again. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw any, anyone with them but Jesus only. It reminds me of those times when you see a preview for a movie. If you've ever been sitting in a movie theater and they run the previews beforehand, and I don't usually like movie previews because I feel like they spoil things sometimes. 
But occasionally you watch one and you go, ooh, that looks really good, and they clip out these really exciting parts, and you get really excited to see this movie, and then at the end, they show you the title of the movie, and then coming April 23rd, 2017, to a theater near you. There's just the title, and then a coming soon. And I go, ooh, and Laura says, shh, <laughs> especially if we're in a movie theater, and she should say that. But there's something in this that in the experience, they see Jesus transformed. Here suddenly is Moses and Elijah standing with, there with them. And Peter says, let's set up some tents so that we can stick around a while. Maybe you'll even camp. We'll have a little sleepover. You stay the night. But then the cloud comes and the father speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. And then verse 8 comes. And then suddenly looking around, it was all back to normal, and there was Jesus again. Still deity, but the deity is veiled. This is the credits moment at the end of the preview that would say something like, the glory of Jesus coming soon. We know this, this is a reminder then, an encouragement for us that all this heads somewhere that as Christ went to the cross, it heads somewhere that as he went to the grave, it goes somewhere that even as he was resurrected, that this goes somewhere, that this is all moving to the glory of God and that he will transform us in that glory too. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for giving us this window because in many ways life can be confusing. We get lost, we get distracted, we go off on our own ways. It's good for us here to be able to see you, a glimpse of you, and even though it's overwhelming to us on some level to see you shining whiter than anyone can bleach clothing, there's a part of us that longs for this to see your glory and to even have your glory change us to change the world around us. Help us to be transformed because you are transformed. Father, we give you praise for all of these things and we pray these things then in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.